This message comes from NPR sponsor Dave's Killer Bread, and they're ready to rock the bread aisle. Dave's Killer Bread is a leading organic bread for a reason, killer taste, texture, and nutrition. This isn't bread. This is bread amplified. Support for this podcast comes from American Express Open. If you listen to How I Built This, you're curious about ideas, and you probably have some ideas of your own. American Express Open can help you with money and know-how so you can turn those ideas into action. Visit open.com to get business done. You open the doors to Home Depot, and is there just a mad rush of people to come in? Uh, not as expected. Uh, <laughs> that'd, be, that'd, that'd be a mild statement. So we, uh, we agreed we weren't going to talk to each other in the morning. Open up the two stores, and uh, my three older children, uh, they were each given $500 one in $1 bills. So at 6 o'clock at night, they were standing in front of the store still handing out $1 bills. So we had this grand opening, and nobody came. From NPR, it's How I Built This, a show about innovators, entrepreneurs, idealists, and the stories behind the movements they built. I'm Guy Raz, and on this special live episode, when Arthur Blank got fired from his corporate job in his mid-30s, he didn't wallow in self-pity. He got revenge by building a business plan for a new company, the Home Depot. So back in 1979, when Home Depot opened its first store in Atlanta, there were, of course, other hardware stores. But at the time, there was nothing quite like Home Depot. For starters, it was huge, almost twice as big as its competitors. And second, it offered things like free workshops and staff who could tell you how to fix stuff at home. But most importantly, Home Depot was cheap, like 10 to 20 percent cheaper than other hardware stores. Now, initially, Home Depot wasn't a sure thing. In fact, on day one, it wasn't clear it would work. But today, Home Depot is a company that does almost $100 billion in annual revenue. And it's one of the 10 biggest private employers in the U.S. And the story of how Arthur Blank and his mentor, Bernie Marcus, built it will inspire anyone who's ever been fired. Because if those guys had never got fired from their safe and comfortable corporate jobs, they'd have never started Home Depot. Now, Arthur and Bernie no longer run the company, but they still own lots of shares. And Home Depot's made them rich. Arthur Blank's net worth is estimated at more than $4 billion. And one other thing about Arthur, he is beloved in his adopted hometown of Atlanta. And a big part of that has to do with his stewardship of the Atlanta Falcons, which he now owns. Arthur Blank sat down with me in front of a live audience at the Buckhead Theater in Atlanta. And we started out by talking about his boyhood and growing up in Flushing, New York. What, what are your earliest memories of, of your childhood? Oh, Lord. Uh, probably fighting with my brother. Uh, that would be one. Um, it was but, you, your brother, your mom, and your dad, yes, right? Yes, exactly. Uh, we lived in a small apartment. It was a, a one-bedroom apartment, one bathroom. We shared that. Shared the, actually, my brother and I shared the bedroom, and my mom and dad slept in a little pull-out thing in the foyer. 
Um, I went out in the morning, stayed out all day, and came home mm-hmm. when it got dark. And and um, and and it was a you were a middle class family, right? Very middle class family. Yes. Yeah. What Absolutely. did your What did your dad do? My dad uh, was a pharmacist. Um, he passed away when uh, he was 44. I was 15 at the time. Several years before that, he had left. Uh, he was working for his, his brother in a retail drugstore, and uh, he started his own pharmaceutical distribution company uh, to hospitals and nursing homes and doctors across the country. Uh, when he passed away, my mother was only 37 at the time, and mm. without any business background, um, she went in and started to run the business. Uh, my mother was one of these people, which you know, failure was not part of her vocabulary and she was going to succeed and she was going to do whatever it took to be successful in the business and I would go to school and, and I was playing football then and do my football practice, come home, I'd start dinner, um, I did the family laundry and just did a variety of things to support the house as best I could and, and mm-hmm. uh, try to be as good a friend to my mother as I could be. I remember periodically I would, I would take her and go bowling and I remember one time, you know, she was very young looking. Somebody would ask me, well, is that your girlfriend? I said, no, that's my mother, actually. <laughs> it's not, not my, actually my, my girlfriend. But uh, she was always very young at heart, very young in spirit. She loved to dance, very much of a caring person. You went off to college at, at Babson College, is a, a small a business college in Massachusetts. Um, right. Was that was that your intention to get into business out of school? Well, I think really what happened after my dad died, uh, we uh, would talk about what's going to happen to the family business. Um, we had hoped, uh, you know, my mother would, you know, get remarried. She did. Uh, she exceeded our wishes. She did several times over. Uh, <laughs> She, she would she would laugh at that too. She wouldn't. She didn't think my, my my mother would think that would be very funny. So, uh, but in any event, um, so my brother was going to take over the uh, pharmaceutical end of the business, and I would take over the business end of the business. So that that was really the plan. He went to pharmacy school. I went to business school, and uh, was able to develop some skills in terms of uh, how to work with others and be inclusive and uh, and and be a good leader. So that. That was very important for me in college. So out of college, you, I guess you start work as an accountant, right? For a couple of years? Right, right, for five years. But um, I kind of realized during that period of time, I didn't want to spend the rest of my life uh, recording what other people were doing and making sure the books are balanced and all that kind of stuff and giving good audit advice. But I wanted to be on the other side of the desk, if you will where I actually was, could help make the decisions and help drive the business and build the businesses. So I guess it was in your mid-20s or late-20s, you went and worked for a company called Dalen. Yeah, I was what, young, yeah. What was, what was Dalen? Uh, Dalen was a conglomerate when that word was uh, really fancy and drew high P ratios. Uh, the great majority of the company ended up being in bankruptcy. Uh, I was running a chain of drugstores. I originally started out as a CFO there. We were the only part of the company that was making any money, and they had a small home improvement center company in California called Handy Dan Home Improvement Centers. They were also making a little bit of money, but the rest of the company is all losing money. So I had an option to stay there and continue just to run the business as it was, or potentially go to California. Uh, I had met my partner at HD, Bernie Marcus, uh, through, through Dale, and Bernie was running the discount store division for them. 
uh, that wasn't doing well. And so that time I was 24 or five years old. Um, I mean, I was a young man. Just to, just to be, so, so just to clarify, you were run, you were the CEO of these the drug stores that right. Dalen owned. And Bernie was involved with their discount stores. Right, right. Both of those businesses were sort of collapsing, and and you had this option to go work for for another business they owned, which was Handy yeah. Dan, which was the the well, home just, just to be clear, the drugstore business we were running was actually very profitable. Right. I just want to be clear on that. We were Got making it. a lot of money. The par- the parent company had no money to give us for expansion, and I didn't want to be part of that. I didn't want to be just maintaining. 75 stores until yeah. I got 75 years old. So yeah. I, I decided then either I was going to leave or whatever, and they, and they offered me this opportunity in California to work with Bernie, and Bernie and I had been very close. So then I went to work for Bernie uh, in California at Handy Dan Home Improvement Centers. My wife then uh, didn't want to go to California because she was positive that we would be consumed by a quake of some sort, but she ended up, <laughs> she ended up coming, and, and um, we ended up you know, having some kids there. I've had kids all over. You name an age, I have a child. So uh, I've got, I've, uh, I've got, <laughs> I have six wonderful children, and my wife has three children. So, and then I always consider the Home Depot to be my seventh child. So, um, anyway. so you, so you moved to Southern California. You start working for Handy Dan. Right. Bernie Marcus is there as well. But, but what he's about, I guess, uh, about 14, 15 years older than you. What was he sort of like a mentor to you? Yeah, Bernie is, uh, he's 14 years my senior, and he's probably, you know, a combination of brother and a father figure, hmm. having lost my dad, uh, and a rabbi. I mean, it's, he's always considered himself to be a rabbi. And, and so I, uh, and he's a great storyteller, I'm a great joke teller. And uh, I'm, I'm not a great storyteller, but I'm a great audience. He would tell the same stories, and I would keep laughing at the same stories. So I was, it was like a great partnership because he loved hearing you know, me laugh, and it was like a marriage. It was like a marriage. It was like a very good marriage. So what did you, what did you and Bertie start to do at Handy Dan? Did you start to... I mean, you were trying to make this into a successful company. So what were some of the things that you were doing at that company and experimenting with at that company at the time? Well, that company, Handy Dan Home Improvement Centers, was, and we operated kind of a traditional model, 40,000 square feet, 40% gross margin, 40 associates on the floor. Uh, And it it was by far the most successful chain of home improvement center Hmm. stores in the country then. And we had a tax treaty with our parent company, parent company being Dalen. And so we would send our tax money, instead of going to the government, we sent it directly to, to Dalen. So we were a, a favorite child in that company because we were kind of keeping the company afloat, if you will, with our tax money. At some point, the parent company was bought by a guy named Sanford Sigaloff, right. um, who, who was actually quite famous at the time. He was in these Wix commercials, and he his, was... His real name was Ming the Merciless. Right. I mean, that's right. And he actually called himself know that, too, right? Yeah. Right. Yep. right. And he yeah. comes into the company, right. and uh, he fires you guys. He gets rid of you. What do you What do you remember about that day? Were you shocked? Yeah, uh, yes, I was shocked. Yeah, I mean, uh, we were. We were I mean, at that time, we were running the most successful home improvement center company in the United States. And Bernie um, and uh, what is his name, Sandy's merciless Ming Sigaloff. Yes, Sigaloff. Right. He and he and Bernie would get into fights during board meetings and. I mean, they both were very, you know, self-confident, strong people. Uh, 
Sandy had a difficult time because basically all the profitability, all the cash flow from Dalen was coming from this home improvement center company. Bernie was properly, you know, taking credit for the results that we were producing. Sandy didn't like that, so this was, uh, you know, a hmm. war of the giants, and they owned more stock than than we did, and so called my wife and I told her, and she started laughing. Because um, she didn't she, believe you. Well, she didn't believe me. She thought it was a joke. She said, well, yeah. I mean, how, how can you be fired? I said, well, I tried to explain, you know, political strife in, in the business context to her. And uh, so I said, she said, I still don't believe you. I said, well, I'm going to get in the car and start driving home. And by the time I got home, uh, Wall Street Journal had called the house, the LA Times had called the house, the Orange County uh, newspaper called. I mean, there were, there were hmm. people on the phone that wanted to talk to me. So... Walked in the house, she said, I guess you weren't joking, were you? I said, no, I'm not. I'm not. So, um, wow. So was, I mean, you were 36. You had kids, yep. I guess, at that point. Right. Um, had three children then. Were you... Yeah. Uh, That's called first batch. <laughs> That's what they call themselves. Right. Did you, did you have... I, I'm just curious. I mean, you know, you've got this job. You moved to California. It's very successful. You've got this career ahead of you. Right. I don't know. Were you were you worried? Did you feel like the rug was pulled from out out from under you? Well, I, I you know I you know I was shocked, and uh, but you know I mean, given the financial background that I had, we had saved up some money. I wasn't you know I wanted to take my time as did Bernie and uh, think through the options that we had. You know he was still a fairly young man at that point as well. And I uh, didn't want to rush into anything, so I took basically the better part of the year off. I did a lot of running, ran my first marathon that year, spent a lot of time with my kids. I mean, I did a lot of things that hmm. I wanted to do. Um, was looking at a lot of different alternatives. We wanted to think about outside the box, and, uh, and Bernie had said, well, you know, if we were, we were ever to leapfrog our own business, Handy Dan Home Improvement Centers, what kind of home improvement center store could we not compete against? Hmm. And so we said we could never compete against the big warehouse, no frills, down market, low prices, great service, great services. So instead of kind of taking that handy Dan model of the fours, $4 million, 40% margin, 40 staff people, et cetera, we said, let's try to leapfrog the industry, you know, dramatically. How did you, how, when, when Bernie came to you and said, Hey, here's the business plan. You were in. You were in right away. You you, you said let's do this thing. Well, we did the business plan together, mm-hmm. and I and uh, Bernie and I. Bernie lived in the San Fernando Valley. For those of you that know L.A., it's from a three-hour to a three-day drive to get <laughs> to get from you know Orange County to San Fernando Valley, and, and so we would talk a lot by phone, and I would develop really all the business plans and work on the models and things of that nature, I would send them to him, he would look at them, or we'd meet at a coffee shop that was somewhere in the middle, which we met at, I don't know how many times, but they had a table there that was kind of named after us, and we kept, you know, (laughs) developing this model and developing it, and finally, I remember one night I had, you know, all these papers spread out on our dining room table, and I, you know, I called Bernie and I said, you know, listen, partner, um, I mean, I've applied, you know, five years of, of experience in large public accounting firm, my own business experience, my experience running a chain of drugstores, and these numbers don't add up. Huh. And I still remember what Bernie said on the other end of the phone. He just said, change the numbers. <laughs> he says, change the numbers. Like, change the numbers. So, I mean, his argument, which really was valid, was that, look, this is a model. 
we don't have any of these stores. We're, we're just projecting what one might do. And, but, you know, at that, at that time, I mean, so I understood. I said, but it's got to be, we got to be able to present this to very sophisticated investors and have it make some sense and be plausible. But reality is that the investors who invested in our company, there's 144 of them, um, really what they were buying into was just myself and Bernie. Yeah, because you, uh, you had the experience. We had the experience, right. and they looked back at, at Handy Dan Home Improvement Centers, and they said, we're betting on people here. We're not going to bet on, the, on, the, on, on that experience, on that smaller store. Arthur, why did you guys decide to start this company in Atlanta? You were based in Southern California at the time. How did you pick this area? Well, I had lived in, uh, in Atlanta. The chain of drugstores was based in Griffin, Georgia. Right. Uh, Griffin is the first city south of Atlanta. Um, I always remembered Atlanta. It was a growth city, growth market. I love the city. Um, so we, um, I asked Bernie, let's, you know, let's go to Atlanta. And um, you know, at that time, this is hard to imagine because Atlanta, even today, uh, qualifies as a national park based on the number of trees that are still up in Atlanta despite all the development here, but there was less than a million people living in Atlanta at that time. So when I drove Bernie around Atlanta to look at the sites, uh, 285, which is, everybody here is familiar with it, um, all, the, all you could see was trees. And so every once in a while, every 10 minutes, Bernie would say, there's nobody living here, Arthur. So you can't open up a business, there's nobody living here, there's nothing but trees here. I'd have to get off the highway, drive him around for a little bit, show him some more, you know, divisions, subdivisions, get back on the highway, drive some more. He said, it's still not enough people, there's nobody here. I just wow. with all these trees. So we did that, like, for two hours, we drove around 285 and got off and looked at subdivisions. So finally, um, he became convinced that Atlanta would be uh, an important growth market, and it was even growing then. It was less than a million people when we opened up here in 1979, and today it's something yeah. north of 7 million people. Uh, so. On that opening day in 1979, yeah. you, you had, you'd raised the money to open two shops. You're in Atlanta. You open the doors to Home Depot, and is there just a mad rush of people to come in? Uh, not as expected. Uh, <laughs> that'd, be, that'd, that'd be a mild statement. So we, uh, we agreed. Bernie and I went to one store, and my partner Pat and other associates obviously went to the other store, and we agreed we weren't going to talk to each other in the morning. And uh, my three older children, uh, they were each given $500 one in $1 bills. And I told them, I said, look, you know, I told the mother, I told them, I said, they'll be back in school by 11, 12 at the very latest. So at 6 o'clock at night, they were standing in front of the store still handing out $1 bills. So we had, we had this grand opening and nobody came. In just a minute, how the Home Depot went from a flop on opening day the largest home improvement chain in the world. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to How I Built This from NPR. Support for this NPR podcast comes from American Express Open. Listeners to How I Built This are curious, curious about how good ideas become great businesses, and chances are you have some good ideas of your own. But as you know, In business, there can be a lot of roadblocks. American Express Open knows how hard it can be to get things done, and they want to help with money and know-how so you can turn those ideas into action. Visit open.com to get business done. Hey, welcome back to How I Built This from NPR. 
I'm Guy Raz. So Arthur Blank and his business partner, Bernie Marcus, opened their first two stores in the Atlanta area in 1979. But to say the least, it didn't quite go as expected. And so over the next year, they worked really hard to identify what wasn't working. And they experimented with different pricing and different merchandise to try and get more customers into the front door. We spent really the next year in um, one of our core values is to listen and respond. And listening, I probably spent 75% of my time, as did Bernie, as did really most of our associates, on the floor of the store, finding out from customers what is it they like, what didn't like, and we kept changing the mix, adding things, taking things off, changing prices, changing assortments, changing vendors, uh, making sure we had service levels in areas they wanted them. So we kept refining the model. Um, every competitor came into our stores and visited us and said, I mean, these, I can't use bad words here because this is like kind of a live radio thing, but these, uh, whatever you want to call us, they're crazy. The stores are much too big, prices are much too low, they have w way too much product in stock, they have too many services. I mean, the math isn't going to work. Huh. And of course, the math during 79 wasn't working as great. We fine-tuned it, got it where it needed to be, exploded in 80 and 81, and the numbers were incredible. Uh, and we went public in 81, obviously we got a great, um, you know, a great reception from the stock market. And um, then there's a long story after that, but at that point forward, we knew we were going to be very successful. Arthur, I want to ask you about how you and Bernie thought of the company. And you have to, of course, agree on what it's going to be, what the values of the company are. So what, what were the core values of, of Home Depot? Well, I think that, you know, we never really wrote them down. Uh, I remember I went to a lunch at Bernie and I said, you know, we're living these values, which by far, in a way, is the most, most important thing that we can do, but they're not written down. And I'm going to give you some shocking news today that I've kind of figured out and know to be true, and that is that you and I are going to approve a lot of stores in the future that we will actually never see. We'll never be in them. We'll never get a chance to go visit them. I remember he'd stop eating lunch, put down knife and fork, and we said, you're nuts. He said, that's crazy. How can we approve stores and never go visit them? I said, Bernie, because we, we, we spent about half our time in our stores, and I said, if you do the math of it, we visit certain numbers of our existing stores every year, and uh, we just realized that there were too many new stores, and that, so I said, we need to document, need to write down. And, you know, I, I think the beauty of our core values, which are really focused on our associates and people and relationships and community and giving back and the people who are serving drive everything that we're doing. Uh, those are the ones that we listen to, those are the ones we respond to, those are the ones we care for, those are the ones we nurture. And that's the mentality of the training that we've given to all of our associates. You went, Home Depot went from zero revenue in 1979 to 700 million in 1985, the fastest company in U.S. history to hit 40 billion dollars in revenue. How did you manage that growth? Was that overwhelming? I'll tell you a story. Sam Walton. Um, Sam Walton was the founder of Walmart. Um, Sam was speaking at a retail conference I went to, and somebody asked him. And the company had gone from I don't know 10 billion to 20 billion or something. Today, I don't know what they own half the world. But, but they, uh, I mean, whatever, you know, between them and Amazon, but, but we said, well, how did you get from 10 to $20 billion? Mm -hmm. And Sam said, we opened up one store at a time. And that's all we did. And so really at HD, 
We had a five-year plan, we had a one-year budget, we had all of that, but we focused on every single store and our, our um, plan was that each store had to be better than the last store we opened up. So we didn't have any planograms, we didn't have any, you have to do it this way, we didn't let the model get frozen, we didn't let it, we made the folks running the store think about this is the last store, how do I make this store better? How do I own it? How do I feel accountable for it? How do I inject my ideas into it? And how do I make it better? So every store got better. What about your personal life? I mean, did it take a toll on the time you were able to spend with your kids, your family? I mean, you must have been working all the time. I thought you weren't going to ask me about my personal life. <laughs> no, you can ask me whatever you want. I told guys, anything you want to talk about is fine. Um, I think it's one of the things I'm most proud of. My oldest daughter, who she was running a nonprofit for um, for young women in San Francisco, and when they did a retirement dinner for me in 2001, she couldn't be there. She could, couldn't get away, and she did a video piece and she sent it. And I still remember, you know, what she said there. And she says, "Dad, you know, I never realized when I was growing up, you know, the size of the Home Depot and the success of it because." You were always there for me. You were always at events that were important to me. You were always there when I was doing dance recitals. You were always there, you know, important school programs, whatever it may be. And and I worked around the kids' schedule, and I would work early in the morning. I'd work late at night. I'd put them to bed and work after that. And so I, I always made sure there was balance in my life. And I think, you know, I'm often asked by young folks, uh, most people are younger than me, so it's easy for me to find people that want that advice today, but I always tell them, you know, make sure you have balance in your life, and, and because too many young executives, men or, or women, they their attitude is that we got to work now, work hard, and, you know, put my career in, on fifth gear and go, 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 and I said, when you return home in 10 years, you're not going to recognize your kids, and your spouse is going to look at you and say, who are you again? Hmm. Um, so I think it's important uh, to find balance in your life. You stepped down, stepped away from the company, left the company at, at a pretty young age. You were 58. This is 2001. Um, why did you leave? Were you just kind of, your time there was done? Well, I told the board at that time, I mean, I'd done, I mean, the earlier days in the company, the first, I don't know how many years, but oh, that was a 23-year period of time that it was, it was great fun. It was all these adventures, starting a new business, you know, going half broke, figuring out how to work through that, you know, responding to customers. And as time went on, I spent, found myself spending more time in meetings, more time doing things that I had to do that were part of the job. And I didn't dislike doing them, but they weren't as much fun for me anymore. So, and I really felt that 23 years was a, a long time for hmm. uh, somebody in my position, first as president, later as CEO, and chairman, and what have you. And, and, and Bernie and I had always, you know, operated as a very close partnership. I mean, it was really more like two brothers working together, two partners working together, than anything else. The and you still talk to him, right? Well, I, I talk to him as often as I can. We probably had two dinners and a lunch in the last uh, 60 days together. Hmm. So um, I see him, see him a lot, and, you know, it's, uh, it's always great to, to do that. So I felt the time was right. We, uh, we began to do a search. Uh, the board found a candidate that was, uh, his name is Bob Nardelli. I'm going to get some hisses from my HD folks in the audience now. 
But they brought in Bob Nardelli uh, as the CEO. The board made that decision, and um, and I was sure happy I wasn't there during the six years that he was there. Uh, so uh, um, that, that that would have been the worst time in my life. Um, but that but that was a time in your life when you really made your biggest mark on the city of Atlanta by buying the Falcons. Yeah. Right. I mean that well, that was. Yeah, thank you. Well, can, can you yeah. can you explain what what was the I mean what, did you have this burning passion to own the Falcons was it was it sort of a chance to run a business again what was the thinking behind behind doing that Well I was a season ticket holder you know, since I had moved to Atlanta and uh, I didn't realize this but the commissioner before uh, Commissioner Goodell uh, Commissioner Tagabu at the closing when I bought the team he said you realize the team you just bought has never had back to back winning seasons. And I said, Paul, I, you know, Paul's the smartest guy in the room, not because he told you, just because he really was the smartest guy in the room. I said, that can't be correct. So I went back and I checked and it turned out that was correct. So I realized <laughs> all those years that I was a season ticket holder and I would have such angst over the Falcons, I understood why, because it was, you know, constantly, you know, like this. So I said to myself, I can either sit and complain about it for the next, you know, 40 years of my life or just try to buy the team and fix it. So, uh, so I felt, you know, buying a team and fishing, it seemed like more fun than uh, sitting there and just watching them play and losing games and what have you. So that was in 2001, um, and I'm just finishing up our 17th year as, uh, mm. as owners. Now we've had, we've had, you know, we've had multiple back-to-back -back winning seasons, multiple championships, uh, played, well, last year in the Super Bowl, we just we forgot there was a fourth quarter in the game. But played really well for three quarters, and somehow, you know, this has been, um, to say the least, a an interesting year in, in the NFL. Um, do you feel like players who are trying to bring awareness to the way our criminal justice system treats black yeah. men and women versus yeah. whites by not standing for the national anthem? Do you feel like that? Well, that's I acceptable. I, yeah, I, I I think it's um, I think it's it's less acceptable to deny people their First Amendment rights. So I, I think that's less acceptable. Uh, having you know, having said that, I mean I think that players should stand and should and should stand respectfully for the national anthem. Um, and I will tell you, there are 1,750 players in the NFL, and I will tell you. These players have great respect for the military, and so it's not about the military to them. It's just that becomes an opportunity, a platform for them to speak about their concerns about social injustice, police accountability. Their focus is on turning that platform now into progress on these issues and making sure that owners and organizations and America are, are listening to voices that cannot be heard. Um, and I think I'm all for that. So. How much of your, this is a question I ask everybody who comes on the show, how much of your success do you attribute to your intelligence and your hard work and how much of it to luck and timing? Well, I think that luck and timing is a big deal. I mean, I really do. A lot of it is success is based on timing and luck and being in the right place, but then seizing opportunities. I think mm -hmm. being willing to, to go out of your comfort zone, and uh, I'm a big uh, proponent of outward bound. I've done 
I don't know how many outward bound courses myself, but um, we did a lot of that in terms of the, the training at HD, but a lot of it is based on their philosophies to serve, to strive, and not to yield. So I, I think that having that, that entrepreneurial drive and spirit um, to get up every day, to have purpose in your life every day, to become better every day, I'm doing this because I have a passion for doing it, and I love being of service to other people in whatever form that I can be. Arthur Blank, founder of Home Depot, owner of the Atlanta Falcons. Thank you. Thank you. That was my conversation with Arthur Blank, founder of the Home Depot, live in Atlanta, Georgia, at the Buckhead Theater. And in addition to the Falcons, Arthur owns Atlanta's new major league soccer team, Atlanta United, that started playing in 2017. And by the way, in case you were wondering, the guy who fired you in 1978, Sanford Sigaloff, did you ever, any, ever have any contact with him after Home Depot? Like, did you and Bernie I, I, ever... You know, I used to tease Bernie. We ought to send him a thank you note, you know, every, uh, every anniversary date when we were fired, and he didn't want to do that. Anyway, he did us a favor. Hey, thanks for listening to this special live episode of How I Built This. This episode was produced by Casey Herman with music composed by Ramtin Arablouei. Thanks also to Neva Grant, Sanaz Meshkanpour, Claire Breen, and Jeff Rogers. Our intern is Diana Mustak. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to How I Built This from NPR. Hey, my name is Peter Sagal, and I'm here to help you with the most pressing problem facing civilization today. There are too many good podcasts to listen to. Now, why not avoid that whole problem by listening to an extremely silly podcast hosted by me? On Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, it's wisecracks about the week's news, shenanigans, fart jokes, and general silliness. And doesn't that sound pretty great right now? Listen to the Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me podcast from NPR.